What's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Two Rowdy Vegans. We have with us, with us, can't pronounce words, this week, the co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere, Chris Van Breen. Um, so if you don't know, Direct Action Everywhere, also known as DXC, is one of the huge animal rights organizations of the world. Uh, they notably organized the Animal Liberation Conference, which is coming up in May that I'm going to be at, which I'm Yay! very excited about. It's actually, for me, it holds a special place in my heart personally because that's where I started my journey of activism, if that makes sense. I went there about mm. two weeks after I became an activist, and I came out of that being like, oh, okay, I should probably start doing this mm. um so that's you know that that's kind of what dxc did for me personally it's also where i actually met you for the first time even though like i don't know if you remember that but like it was in the before the training for the open rescue well during the training for the open rescue we were in little groups and we had these things we we're doing these like live sculptures kind of thing i don't know if you remember were that we were in a group together we were in a group together we were in that group together oh my yeah. god um <laughs> Which is so you could say that DXC is the reason for the two rowdy vegans to oh exist. Oh my in the first gosh, place. the two who? Oh, wow. Rowdy. The two what? Rowdiest. Rowdiest vegans in the world. Two, two, two rowdy vegans. 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 Two. Two rowdy vegans, one plus one equals two rowdy vegans. Wow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to start this off, you know, and obviously I want to talk personally about DXC and about where it's headed, what DXC stands for, what direct action even means, and all that. Mm. Um, but if you could tell before that your personal story, where you come from, how you got into the animal rights space, how you became vegan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm really blessed that I came from a very loving family. Like, I used to, I don't know if I actually didn't like hugs or pretended to not like them, but like, you couldn't not hug your relatives. Like, when your cousins came over, you had to give them a big hug. Mm -hmm. And um, I also came from a social justice family. So, like, mm. at least by four years old, my parents were taking me to actions, you oh, know. Wow. Uh, whether it was farm worker wow. actions, you know, uh, my family was involved with Cesar Chavez and the farm worker movement. And, uh, you know, my mom was taking me to, you know, feminist rallies and things like that. And so I'm very lucky to have had that background. Uh, my stepdad, who I just call my dad, uh, was very involved with the unions. And so I learned a lot about that kind of activism mm -hmm. like structure based mm -hmm. uh you know very much power politics type of activism mm -hmm. and uh forceful leveraging well you're very lucky so, to have been yeah. around that yeah so i was around all that and then in high school i first volunteered with and then organized a bit with uh, a latinx focused um tutoring mentoring program yep and then uh, in college, I did some more organizing with them and with some other groups, organized my own, my first like student thing, which was to get a class offered. And then, um, and then I, when I graduated college, it was interesting. So while I was in college, I started caring more and more about animals. So I was always involved in human rights work mm -hmm. and because people that I worked with they knew I was down for the cause. Yep. And so they were cool with that. But when I graduated at University of Maryland and moved to California, and I would go and meet people, 
people would be like, oh, you care about animals? And I felt like they would kind of look down on me for that. Well, why, did just, they, why did they think you cared about animals? I mean, what did you... Oh, because, you know, I was vegetarian at the time, and I just would say that I care about animals, you mm-hmm. know? And, and when I would meet, go to animal rights people, and I'd say I care about humans, you know, and human rights issues, I felt like I would get looked down on for that. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of... Um, uh, what do you call that when you hate humans? There's that. There's that oh yeah, word. Um, Mis- misanthropy. misanthropy. Yeah, yeah. misanthropy. Uh, there's a lot of misanthropy mm-hmm. in the uh, animal rights movement. Yeah, yeah there is. And so, uh, yeah. So for for years, I just didn't do any activism, and then um, I, you know, met some people who care about both. I started working with them for a mm-hmm. while, and after a few years, I met Wayne in 2012 in the fall, uh, Wayne Shung, and we decided to start a new group. We decided that first it was just intellectual conversations Mm -hmm. where we looked at, okay, like what's the difference between these other successful social justice movements and the animal liberation movement? What are the, some of the different differences? And we found three main differences. Mm -hmm. So the first was a strong, large, supportive community. So if we think about, uh, you know, the gay rights movement had like, you know, gay community centers and club and bars and such. And, you know, uh, the women's suffrage movement, they had like these women's circles mm-hmm. and women's groups. Uh, the civil rights movement had the black church. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of movements have had churches. And, um, and a small percentage of that huge community would be activists. Mm-hmm. And we felt like that we had a bunch of, you know, animal rights people or vegans who would like attack each other. So, and even (laughs) if like all of them were one community, it would still be way too small of a community. Like these other communities were much larger, made up a larger percentage of the population. And so one problem is that we need a larger community. And that's still a problem today. We need a larger supportive community to support activism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another problem was strong messaging. I felt like when we would talk to people in the street, hey, what do you think of animal rights? People would be like, I totally support animal rights. Mm. We should treat animals better before we kill them. Mm. Yeah. And so it's like we need stronger messaging. People can't think that animal rights means treating them better before we kill them. Mm -hmm. Like if people are thinking that, they don't even know what we're talking about. Right. Right. So there can't be any, there's no argument. Mm. So then the third thing was stronger above ground direct action. Because there was, we ha- we felt there was a lot of like outreach work that was mm-hmm. good work. Yep. Um, and then there's obviously like lobbying work mm-hmm. and uh, and other types of things like that. And then there was like underground direct action, you know, where people like hide what they're doing and hide who they are. And so what we felt was all of these other movements had strong above ground direct action movements, uh, gr- uh, sections of the movement. Like, people, who, can you talk about like what groups you're talking about? Um, I mean, Emily Pankhurst is famous, you know, in the women's suffrage movement, uh, the civil rights movement, like the majority of the movement, I think was, uh, pretty famous for the SCLC, which is the group that Dr. King led. We've studied them a lot. Um, and then, you know, just like people willing to show up, and do controversial things mm-hmm. Contro- and direct action. So one of the things is that like a lot of people define direct action mm-hmm. very differently. Mm-hmm. And the, 
in Kingian nonviolence, uh, which is the nonviolence based on the civil rights movement, uh, we teach that direct action is when we decide, when a small group of people decide that we are going to like fix the problem. We are going to make sure that this problem gets fixed. Um, and so in a lot of times people are saying, we want the government to fix this problem, or we want this company to fix this problem. And it could be the case that they end up fixing the problem, but with direct action, we are taking the responsibility to make sure that that happens. Um, and we, you know, there's other things that are important, like honesty, uh, and, well, let me just say, because to, in order to take responsibility yeah. for fixing the problem, like yeah. as a group, yeah. we have to first take personal responsibility to really mm-hmm. heal whatever is inside of us mm-hmm. that causes us to be a problem. Yeah. Because so many of us individually are problematic and we need to look at our own selves. Mm-hmm. We need to do our self-analysis and we need to admit where we are at fault, see where we could do better. Yeah. And admit that to our fellow human beings, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I have felt uh, that DXC has, in many ways, been less speciesist than other groups is, at least for the first few years, we really owned that we were speciesist. And that I would say that we are speciesist. We've been born into this society where absolutely, in every way, shape, and form, we look down on animals as we look at ourselves as superior to them. And so we've been so infected mm-hmm. by speciesism that the idea that I am, I have no, no part of me that's not speciesist still mm-hmm. is ridiculous to yeah. us. And so owning that we are speciesist and constantly looking for specific practices that, uh, that are speciesist that we may be doing or words that we say that might be contributing to speciesism, constantly looking for that has helped us to be less speciesist. And the same thing goes for, you know, every other type of ism that we don't want, like racism and sexism. It's, I remember learning when I was uh, 20 years old that I was contributing to sexism, that uh, I always thought of, you know, my mom was taking me to feminist rallies since I was a tiny kid. Mm -hmm. I thought of myself as a feminist and then when I was 20, a friend of mine told me how some of my behaviors uh, and things that I would say were making women uncomfortable, making them not want to be in the, in, space, in the community space. And I was just like, when I heard that, I was blown away. And so this, you know, Wayne and I really come from this background of knowing that we are a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just what you said, like, we can't change all of society unless we change ourselves first. Mm-hmm. And so always trying to be open to the idea that we are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you, you said, you know, we're speciesist. You know, wow. You know, just like I grew up, you know, with a, in, a, in my family, mm-hmm. my mother was very racist. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't want me to say that, but mm-hmm. she was. And my dad, not so much, but he was half Mexican, half Spaniard and you know, it was uh, not really him that was the racist. It was my mother. And she instilled that in us. Hmm. And I never would have thought I was a racist until hmm. I grew up and found out that I was indeed acting racist. Hmm. Not because I chose to be racist, hmm. but because I was indoctrinated yeah. in my family, in my culture, hmm. 
just like we're indoctrinated to be speciesist in our culture by our families. And so, you know, I really do believe that we all are born a blank slate. We're Mm -hmm. all born, in my opinion, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, vegan. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, would would grow up if they were, if they were, uh, you know, raised by a vegan family and they would want to eat meat. Yeah. Even if that same person was born by, I mean, was raised by a family that was a hunters, butchers, or whatever, they would have, but they would eat meat because you know that same child. Mm-hmm. So we're all born, in my mind, with that blank slate where we can go either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From my limited uh, knowledge and understanding mm-hmm. of sociology, one thing that I've learned is that when we look at something like racism or sexism or speciesism in, in our case. Those are things that are perpetuated in society by a system, and even though the people who are in that system do not consciously support that, they might still end up perpetuating it by adopting normalized behaviors. Um, So, for example, it's normal to eat animals, and so every time that we eat animals, we perpetuate speciesism. And I think it's really interesting what you talked about earlier about how you acknowledge yourself as a speciesist. And, you know, very early on in my journey... Of, of activism, I came across this other activist and she told me, you know, I'm still on this journey of deconstructing my speciesism. And it got me really thinking. And at some point, and I want to get your two cents on this as well, about, you know, what speciesism is. Um, because to me, what I've come to recognize it, for myself at least, in my in my own body, is, is, is like, it's also... A logical understanding of what it is so we understand that speciesism mm. is okay we place the interests of certain animals above the interests of other animals we understand it logically but it also plays out in the way that we feel for example mm. i was giving a presentation at school once and i showed a picture of a burger and i asked all the students i was like what do you what do you think this is can anyone guess what this is and they're like oh it's a burger and i was like this is actually a dog burger it's made of <laughs> dog meat and everyone was shocked oh my and god and then i said you know i'm just kidding it's a cow burger. Yeah. And then everyone felt relieved. And my point was, look at how you feel right now. Experience what you're experiencing. That's speciesism. That's, that was my point. And I was mm. vegan. But the shocking part was that as I said that, I felt myself being relieved. I felt myself mm. being so uncomfortable being like, this is dog meat. And when I said, hey, this is actually cow meat, mm. I felt the relief myself. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's the speciesism inside wow. of me. Wow, mm. Yeah. We all need to be willing to to self analyze at that depth, and yeah. so many people are are afraid of self analysis mm. because that means de- deconstructing their belief systems. Yeah, you so know? there's a couple of different frameworks, and so one of my friends, he's uh, my atheist spiritual mentor, and he says uh, that he calls himself um, a recovering sexist. You know, and I think that like if we think of ourselves as having these problems with ourselves, still working to destruct the problems in society and build up better systems in Mm -hmm. society, replace these uh, bad systems with systems of compassion. Because rather than being born a blank slate, I think we're born filled with compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. And and so thinking of ourselves as you know, speciesists in recovery mm-hmm. or sexists and racists in recovery and ableists and all of these other things like, like, you know, whether it's ageism or all these other things that we don't even think of as often, you know, and just like heterosexism and mm-hmm. transphobia and all of these issues. And so, 
And I think it's really, really, and a lot of times people critique each other over these things. And it's really useful to say this behavior or these words are um, sexist or speciesist or something. And it's not really useful to say that a person is Mm -hmm. speciesist or racist or Mm -hmm. something. Like it's really useful to name the behavior and less useful to name the individual or even the group. Um, and say, if we, if we say, cause I would say every group is racist, every group is sexist, every group is speciesist. And so, but if we can name which aspects of that group are, are in that way, then we could say, okay, like maybe we can change that aspect Mm -hmm. and maybe we can get a little closer to like liberation. Uh, the, that's one way of thinking about it. Another way, you know, that actually is transitioning to the other way, which is that in nonviolence, we teach that no one is a bad person. You know, no one is racist. No one is a bad person. No one is a monster. Now, all of us are capable of doing wonderful things, and all of us are capable of doing monstrous things. Exactly. And so this is, like, really, really important, like, that we never like try to associate anyone with being a bad person because that often will lead to themselves associating themselves as a bad person, which, you know, when, when I think of myself as being a bad person, then it's easier for me to say, okay, I do bad things because I'm a bad person. Whereas, and this is the difference between shame and guilt. So with shame, it's like when you feel like you're a bad person and guilt is, I did a bad thing. Yeah. And so when you feel guilty, that's a useful emotion right. to say, I did a bad thing, I can change. Mm. Right. So when you produce guilt in someone else, that's a good thing. Whereas if you produce shame in someone, if they feel ashamed, then that's less makes them less likely to change. Mm-hmm. Right. So is, is that what is is that part of what DHC is founded upon? Um we when we started, we really started with the power of anger in mind, mm-hmm. which was another aspect of social movements very linked to above ground direct action. Because anger, um, I still think anger is probably the most motivating emotion. If, some, if you see something that makes you angry, you're more likely, statistically, you're more likely to do something about it than if any other emotion, whether it's sadness or happiness, you know. Exactly. You know, or, or anything. So inducing anger is useful. But when we were really pushing that anger, uh, guess what kind of organizers we attracted? Angry ones. Angry ones. (laughs) Right. What do angry people do? Get it mad. They get mad. And what what else do they do? What's another thing that angry... Do they shame people? Well, what do they do with each other? What do do angry people do? They create conflict. They always fight. Angry people fight. And so we, we found that we had a lot of fighting internally because and so around 2014 2015 uh, we started shifting away from anger but do you know why okay because i've studied like in in temples uh, mm. i studied with swami Satchidananda, and one of the things that he teaches mm. that i thought was so profound is it's okay to be angry yeah as long as you know it's a tool and you're pulling it out of your toolkit and you're using it and then you can put it back. But when anger begins to own you mm. and the fight ensues and you're no longer in control, that's when it's problematic, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I just want to ask you about, uh, you know, anger and what exactly that means. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so when you're saying you're using anger, if you had to put it into simple and concrete terms, it would be like, yeah. okay, let's get people mad about what's happening to animals so that they'll go do something about it. And that's yes. how we change things. And is that where, for example, I've seen some of the, the campaigns you've done where you target, say, a specific... Um, a specific company or a specific thing, you're like, oh, this company gets their animals from this, and this, they're, this is how they're treated here, and then you get people angry through that. Is, is that a representation of what that was? Yeah, I feel like that needs to be broken down a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so on the one hand, seeing animals hurt, seeing animals mistreated makes most people angry. Yeah. Makes them want to do something. Yeah. And so, yes to that. And in terms of like what anger is, I think I really like, I think it's Marshall Rosenberg who said like, it's, it's the body's reaction to an unmet need, you know? And so hmm. like, we need to, we need there to be justice in the world. We need for, we need to see animals treated with compassion. Uh, you know? And so, and I think that when we don't have those needs met, of being surrounded by compassion, you know, uh, that anger arises in us. That like that at its root is what anger is. Um, you know, in terms of, I actually, so when we, we want, it's very difficult to do what we want to do. What we want to, and we're not always successful. And I would say a lot of times lately we have been very unsuccessful. We want people to understand that it's always wrong to hurt an animal, to hurt anyone. And sometimes, I think more so lately than before, it looks like we're targeting a particular company or a particular supplier. And so the goal is for us to say we should not be hurting anyone. We should not be killing animals at all. And so... Um, And so, yeah, using anger to motivate people to do that. But we also try to motivate people in other ways. Mm -hmm. But, um, but when anger is the emotion we're trying to use, we are trying to get them mad at the system and not at the people who are doing the actions. Mm -hmm. So this is, we're not, especially... That sounds know, very difficult. Yeah. And I think, and it's, it's, it is very difficult, mm -hmm. um, but it's what needs to happen And so we want to do what needs to happen. We don't want to do the easy thing. So this so, is... So how do you... Ins okay, so you inspire people to uh, get angry at the system. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm hearing this, but, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, why not inspire people to just create new systems, right? Yeah. We have to create new systems. That's what we're doing with the Rancher Advocacy Program is creating new mm -hmm. systems. And there's a real belief for me that as we create new systems new ways of presenting uh, a framework where animals aren't killed anymore, where animals are loved and uh, treated, uh, you know, like citizens, basically, mm. uh, you know, then old systems fall away. Mm -hmm. So do, do we really need to fight the old system? Uh, or, I mean, this is a question I have yeah. because I, I ask myself this question a lot because yeah. I really try my best to focus on creating new systems. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it I can do to create that and help yeah. people, inspire people to want to move in a direction to create new systems? Just like, you know, we have a lobbyist um, that's got the Rancher Advocacy Program that's been in Congress for the last three weeks. We're in Washington, you know, and uh, she's making a lot of headway, you know. She's trying to get $5 million a year to help 
ranchers mm, change. Nice. Uh, wouldn't that be awesome? So if 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 we can start getting uh, that type of action going on in Congress to where they're actually seeing the benefit of their constituents want their constituents want this change because the handwriting's on the wall for these farmers. And so if they can go in as a hero and say, hey, you know, we have this program yeah. that can help you, you know, that can rally people around a new way of doing things. So do you, do we really need to fight? Yeah. So Gandhi's perspective was that um, if, if we think about an iceberg, so there's this thing, this concept that we call a Gandhian iceberg. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about uh, the vast majority of the iceberg is underwater, mm-hmm. you can't see it. And we, that work, you know, more than 90% of the work is self-transformation, mm-hmm. is looking at like, who mm-hmm. am I as a person? And it's really about looking at like, how do I align my values with my actions, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And then the vast majority of what's above the water is what Gandhi called constructive program, which is building the new system, right? So it's building new structures. And one thing we know about from many revolutions around the world is when your focus is to tear down an old system, after you're successful, often what you have is a worse system than what you previously had. So absolutely, you need to build up new systems. We need to build sanctuaries. We need to build institutions of compassion to replace the institutions of violence. Mm. And the tip of the tip of the iceberg was satyagraha or direct action, which from Gandhi's perspective, satyagraha, it means truth force or soul force. And it uh, comes from two different words, but, um, I mean, means truth. Yes. It, and it also, like and to and it also means soul because you can't really separate those Truth two from the soul. That's right. Truth and, is my name. Um, yeah. And so and it also means force. So Gandhi's perspective was mm-hmm. that direct action was to clear away obstacles for a constructive program. If if you're trying to build a sanctuary and someone comes to you and says, "No, we need to like have a railroad come through here," or we need. Uh, or they are putting roadblocks in your way, um, then the purpose of direct action was to clear away obstacles to constructive program. Now, this was Gandhi's perspective, and it's really important to note that Gandhi was a revolutionary, mm-hmm. that Gandhi was trying to completely replace the existing British government. And so what he wanted was to build up Indian, indigenous um, programs so that uh, they could lead them. And only when the police or military would come in and say, you can't do this, that's when they would have the direct action. Now, that's one way of looking at it, which is not how I look at it. Mm-hmm. But it does inform how I look at things. So we absolutely do need those new programs. And if we look at the state of the world, if we look at the environmental catastrophe, the you know the climate crisis that we are in, that we don't have enough time Mm -hmm. to win people over. We do need direct action on a scale that has never been seen before. So many of us uh, say that the sort of scale that we need to work towards 
is like a World War II scale of mobilization. Mm -hmm. So if we look at all of the armies, not just one side, but if we look at all of the armies that were mobilized in World War II, we feel that's how many activists we need to mobilize to completely open up new things that we need and shut down harmful things that we are doing if we are going to have a real chance at survival. Um, so Wow, that's great. That's one way of thinking about this. But what kind of mobilization is this? This needs to be a mobilization filled with love. You know, because one of the things we know is that power corrupts. And the more power you have, the more it corrupts. And Dr. King said, you know, love without power is sentimental and anemic. And power without love is reckless and abusive. And we, if we are mobilizing millions of people, maybe even a billion people around the world, but definitely tens and maybe hundreds of millions of people. And if we are not centered with love, with mm-hmm. love, whatever system, we may shut down animal agriculture. We may shut down all the fur farms and animal testing and fossil fuel industries. And if we are not love-centered, we are going to build in other really oppressive systems. And so we need to be love-centered so that as we build the power, we absolutely need power. The industries, the empire that we're going against is incredibly powerful. And they will go to great lengths to maintain their power. And we need to remove their power. So we need massive amounts of power. And that massive amounts of power has to be centered around incredible love. You know, what's, um, what's interesting is I, I'm in recovery, have mm. been for years. Mm. And one of the things I know is as far, as far as me getting to the core of who I really am so that I can project and be the person that I was intended to be um, is this experience of silence. Hmm. Uh, I've gone in, you know, I've, I've done 10 days of silence three different times at the Swami Satchidananda ashram going on purpose to withdraw my senses to deep inside and just be saturated with, you know, teachings that are very loving, very spiritual whether it be, you know, whatever they are, Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the Tao Te Ching, Buddhism, Taoism, Sikhism, whatever is, is, is love. Uh, and absorb myself with mm. that. Completely withdraw from the world and go inside and then come back to the world totally renewed, recharged, and with the understanding every time I've done it that meditation, that time of silence, is where that love is nurtured. That mm. See, so many of us in our society today, we don't meditate. Mm. We just get up and boom, we're out the door and it's constant doing, 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 doing. Mm. You know, we can talk love, but are we really able to be love? Mm. Yeah, that's one of the things I've said and other people have said this. When I meditate, I am less of an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Like this, you know, and so it it really, it really affects the way you treat other people. And for people 
who are thinking about meditation and thinking, oh, it's so hard. My mind keeps racing. It's, and, you know, meditation, the proof of the meditation is not during the meditation. Mm -hmm. It's how you're treating other people and how you're treating yourself when you're not meditating. Yeah. Um, And there are other things. There's song, there's prayer, uh, even like very mindfully taking a walk where you're very, very much paying attention to every step that you take. So there are people who, uh, for one reason or another, meditation is not for them, um, or they, that is their feeling. And there's other aspects to nurture this love. But I do feel that meditation is one of the more powerful ways You know, one of the that. most fun meditations I ever did mm. was a laughing meditation. Mm. For 30 minutes, we laughed. Mm. You talk about the feelings of joy. Mm. When that was over, yeah. I, I had never experienced it before. You know, and you could tell the people around the room that were so afraid to laugh out loud. Yeah. You know, to, so afraid to experience the fullness mm. of their of their joy. You could see it, you know. Mm. Man, I was like, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it, it's not for everyone. You know, structure, sit down, Om Namah Shivaya is not for everyone. Yeah. But I really do believe, and I've learned through my own practice, that every word we speak, every breath we take, every step we take can be a meditation, regardless of whether we're sitting down or or what we're doing. Mm. It's all about what you just said, mindfulness. It's what do we bring to our actions. Yeah, and and I that is true, and I would not advise that. And not for everyone. Why well, I, I guess I went on the seven-day retreat and when i came back i was exhausted and the thing is is that meditation and just being super mindful is incredibly exhausting um and like it recharges you in a very spiritual way and it's also like i feel and i was told this on the retreat they're like don't fast if you're meditating like, you know, eight hours a day or whatever, you need to eat. You need to keep your strength up. This is actually very difficult work. I really want to ask you a question about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't know if I ever told you, I've also meditated for years, even though I haven't recently and I've been wanting to like get back on the bandwagon, but I just haven't. Mm. Um, and I also strongly believe in what we just talked about, where for me, the way that I look at my personal activism and the way that I'm trying to affect the world is I'm trying to be the change that I want to see. You, I forgot how you phrased it earlier, but the, you know, what, what I've learned from studying many different sources and being a part of transformational work and, and that kind of stuff, um, is that... It, it, there are different ways that you can look at the way that you go about the world. So one way of looking at it is looking at what you have. Another way to look at it is to look at what you're doing. But then what is on top of that, at least in this framework, is who you're being. Yes. And what I've learned and what I believe in, what I have experienced also, is that who I am affects what I do and affects what I have and affects what's around me. So that's what, that, that's how I look at what I'm doing, where I'm like, how, who, who do I get to be? in order to create the change that I want to create. So that's the, the question that I ask myself when I do activism. Um, and one question I want to ask you, based on a previous conversation we had earlier, is, you know, you said that one of the leading characteristics of DXC is that you target institutions and you want to create institutional change and cultural change, as opposed to a lot of activism that's focused on changing individuals. Which is certainly, for example, a, a lot of what I do, where I do outreach or I, I create, I make a lot of videos that reach mm. people, but it's, it's changing individuals. 
And so how do you bridge that gap between, um, you know, approaching people in a, for, from a loving space? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to create institutional change using that, if that yeah. makes sense of the question? Yeah. Um, Good. I like that. That's a huge jump from one conversation to the other, but maybe I can try to bridge that a little bit. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And so one is like, when we talk about, um, if I bring in the iceberg again, that, that most of the work is self-purification, aligning our actions with our values. And so everything we do in constructive program and direct action is also doing that. And so when you talk about being, so the heart learns what the hand does. You can change who you are by changing what you do. Mm-hmm. So often, often you change who you are first, you change your beliefs, and then you change your actions. But you can also intentionally say, I want to be more loving and caring, so I'm going to practice being loving and caring. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find a practice of kindness and do that. And how you move from kindness and compassion on in terms of impacting individuals versus systems is you think about the culture and you think about you think about both hard and soft institutions. So hard institutions are things like laws and companies, things that when you go against them, there is a concrete like um, consequence. So you break the law, you can go to jail. You go against the company's wishes, you get fired, you know, or they sue you or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So concrete, hard institutions, and then soft institutions. So a soft institution is like culture. You know, if if you go to a party and you start like breaking tables and stuff, it's like, well, that is technically illegal, but the bigger consequence is you're going to be seen as rude. Mm-hmm. And often like this cultural thing of being viewed as an outsider is much worse for us usually than these mm. hard institutions. I mean much worse for us on a personal level. On a personal level and on a group level. Like if you go into our, our history, our anthropology, like, you know, being out an outsider was a death sentence. Mm. And so and we're very we're very much herd animals. Yeah. You know, uh it's it's ridiculous to me. People say, don't be a sheep. It's like, no, that's what we are. We are herd animals. Let's own that and recognize that within a herd, there are always individuals that go and experiment in different directions. And the whole herd will end up following one of those. So like let's own that we are herd animals. And that's a very useful way to look very at. Very good point. We are. Yeah, we are. And and when we look at social change, then we look at, we is there a way that we can collectively do things to change both hard and soft institutions? Mm-hmm. And so often we can do rallies and marches and try to put pressure on politicians or other institutions. And we've done this, right? We've done investigations uh, through open rescue and had rallies and protests and gotten in the news about it and forced like Whole Foods to change their standards, you know, change their um, egg laying hen standards, for instance. Or in Costco, like 
stopped using a particular supplier. Now, I think it's very important to note that we did not ask either of those institutions to do those things. Right. Those were side effects. So these Mm. are things that other animal rights groups really want to achieve. They want to achieve better standards. They want to achieve... uh, That's their goal. That's their mission. That's their goal. Our goal is to say no, no hurting animals at all. Yeah. No killing animals. And as a result, they change without you even asking. They change those. We get... Our side effect is what other groups are even trying to do. Mm. That's amazing. And so when we push for that harder cultural change, we often get that that other um, institutional change as a side effect. I see. Hmm. And, and by the way, a foundational question to this conversation is, yeah. what is the importance of seeking to create institutional and cultural change as opposed to changing individuals? Yeah. So if we change an individual, that is a good thing. And it's beautiful that a lot of people are changing individuals and people changing individuals helps us with our work. And hopefully our work makes that other work easier as well. So the difference is when there, when you look at cultural change and legal change, you need both of those. They never happen at exactly the same time, but when you get one, you then need to also get the other. Yeah. So if you pass a law, but you don't change the culture, the law won't be enforced and eventually it'll be reappealed. So, for instance, like in, Sh- in Chicago, they passed a ban on foie gras. Uh, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. And, um, and, but they didn't really create any cultural change, and it got taken down like mm. a year or so later. Mm. And, so, and at the same time, if you have a, create a cultural shift, but you don't change any laws around it, there will still be individuals who do that behavior. And the more individuals who do that behavior, the the more they can build up and take that culture back. And so if we look at like segregation, for instance, we made segregation illegal, but we didn't actually change the culture around it. And so what do we have? We have de facto uh, segregation. We still have communities separated by ethnicity. You know, like it's like their skin, what does their skin look like? That's how we actually separate people in a lot of places in this country still. And so that's you, terrible. So I'm when so we we have legal success that needs to be matched, so the there were tremendous successes in the civil rights movement, but they did not go far enough legally or culturally, and a lot of times they didn't match up, and in ways that they did not match up, it allowed the other to fall backwards, and so. Um, So what we need, and how do you change culture? So if you get a bunch of people to systematically do the same practice, and it's not enough to just do a new practice, it's like, can't we just build this new compassionate system? History says that that is not enough. History says we must build the compassionate system and attack the old system. So uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Liberation Pledge. Mm Yeah, yep, I have a fork. It almost broke. I've worn it so much. <laughs> so I need a new one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, maybe define it for people who are listening who might not know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, the Liberation Pledge is three things. One is to refuse, publicly refuse, to eat other animals' bodies. Two, 
is to publicly refuse to sit where people are eating other people's bodies. Is that table or like venue? Now, that's an interesting question. We don't specify. Okay. And then the third is to ask other people to do the same. Now, that third question, that third part is the important part. It's, it's the way that it could possibly, that it can grow, that it has grown. Asking other people to do the same. So if we just do the first two, then we're making a strong statement, but we're not trying to get that statement to spread. Right. And this comes from like a lot of things. There's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, I know for myself, like I started caring more and more about animals and actually just seeing people eat animals sickening makes me so sad and so if i want to have a friendly conversation with my mom i can't do it while she's eating a fish me either and so i because i love my mom and i want to have my time with her be like loving and compassionate and fun i ask her to be vegan have a vegan meal with me and so um in any case that is one reason for it Another reason for it, which is more strategic, mm-hmm. is that um, is we look at so if we look at foot binding as a historical example in mm-hmm. China, and there was a pledge. There, a group of families pledged to not bind their daughter's feet and to not allow their sons to marry someone whose feet were bound. So. Not binding their daughter's feet, that's sort of the equivalent of not eating animals for us. But not letting their sons marry someone whose feet were bound. Like the reason you bound their feet in the first place was so that they could find a good husband. Um, And so, you know, it's that we want to stigmatize bad behavior. So we want to pro- we want to simultaneously promote good behavior and stigmatize bad behavior. You know, it's so interesting because uh, when I took the pledge, I um, I I found that I could no longer participate in like Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I stopped going to family functions two years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, like you, I got very very sad at one of our Thanksgiving events, and so sad. That I started crying at the at the Thanksgiving meal, mm. and I had to excuse myself, go outside, and I had to tell Tommy I had to go, mm. that I couldn't stay. Mm. I, I when I saw the the carcass of that turkey, with every piece of its flesh pulled off and in the sink, it just was sitting there in the sink, and we had just gotten, you know, some turkeys at the sanctuary, mm. and I loved them turkeys so much. It just was like. I, I mean, it was so cathartic for me. I was like, uh, I can't stay here. Yeah. And my mother to this day, she knows if she's going to have a meal with me, it's going to be vegan. Mm-hmm. And she will tell me when we're at a restaurant, well, you know, what do I need? What, what am I eating? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. she pushes me sometimes. She pushed me the other day at my birthday. We went to Govinda's yeah. in, uh, in Houston. And it's a vegetarian restaurant typically. And on Wednesday and Sunday, they have vegan. All mm-hmm. vegan, supposedly. Mm-hmm. We go in there on my birthday, me and my mom and Danny Alexander and Taylor. Danny's a big Houston animal activist, uh, big in, you know, in a rodeo protest. So, I mean, you know, here we are with my mom. Mom orders a chai. 
Mm. And then the waitress says, but the chai is not vegan. Mm. Well, mom says, well, I'm not vegan. And I said, mom, you are sitting with with vegans. And, you know, if you're going to sit here with us, you know, or if I'm going to sit here with you, mm. I have to insist that you get something different. Mm. Well, I'm not vegan. I said, well, I'll sit at another table. If you want your chai, you go right ahead. But I'm going to sit at another table. I will not sit here mm. with you. If you drink that. And Danny said, neither will I. Mm. And so next, now my mother said, well, what am I getting? You know, but she'll push. Yeah. I think it's good that she pushes. Yeah. And it's when people reject something inside, but they don't talk about it. So the purpose of direct action, and Dr. King put this very eloquently. So look up his exact quote, please, because I'm not going to say it right. But, um is to we are not afraid of tension that our job is to take the already existing tension and elevate it to the surface it's and in fact it's to like bring that tension up so that we have to talk about it so there are problems in society that we are ignoring and be and because we are ignoring the problem we have to take direct action and so like if people, if when we, we should try to talk first, you know, but if as a society, we've refused to talk about, you know, racism, you know, we keep refusing over and over again to talk about sexism. Like there's the Me Too movement now, but this is not the first time this has happened. There have been many times, or at least a few times before where there was a huge uprising. Lots of people were talking about sexism and then things were still bad. You know, and so it's like we need to actually like when there's a problem that's hidden, we need to keep talking about it Mm -hmm. until we figure out how to not have that problem anymore. And whenever we're not talking about a problem, if someone says, or especially if an institution says, I refuse to talk about this problem, if society at large is like, you know what, I don't want to talk about this problem, then direct action forces the conversation. This is why when um, gay rights activists forced the conversation around gay marriage, and I think it was around 80% of the population were opposed to, to gay marriage, this was a success. And the reason it was a success is because now they had a position. Mm. If someone is allowed to not have a position, then there's no argument, there's no discussion, there's no way for change. I see. So if you force people to take a position, and it's not just, you know, like, okay, what color of curtains should we have? Should right. we have green curtains? Should we have orange curtains? Who cares? Right. You, you shouldn't be forcing people to have a conversation around that. But when my decisions, when my actions are hurting other people, yeah. and I refuse to talk about it, you, as my friend, as my fellow citizen of the world, it's your job to make me talk about it. And so since when society at large refuses to talk about racism, refuses to talk about speciesism, or any of these other issues, it is our job as caring, compassionate people to force that conversation. And we force that conversation with love. Absolutely. And it, there's a huge difference between us attacking people and people feeling attacked we want to attack the system and not the individuals so when we 
force the conversation. It has to be with love and we have to not be attacking the persons involved, but we do have to attack the institutions that are harming people. So, so how important is all of this? How important is the DXC message regarding the change that needs to take place quickly? I mean, how, how, how is DXC's messaging um, creating this, this rapid change? What, is, what, do you, what are some of the tactics? Well, um, we use a variety of tactics. I think one of the things that makes DXC really different from most of the other groups, certainly all of the other large groups, is that we are not really defined by our tactics. So if you go to Anonymous for the Voiceless, you are going to do a cube. This is the one that's the most defined, mm-hmm. right? You do AV, you're doing a cube, they're gonna, you're gonna stand in a very specific way, you're gonna wear specific stuff, you're gonna speak in it, like you do the outreach in a specific way. So the training and everything is very like straightforward. Tactical. You know, with save, you're gonna do a vigil of some kind. Save is branched out. They're doing more mm-hmm. outreach stuff. They do mm-hmm. other things as well. But for the most part, you're probably going to a place of violence and you're going to stand there, try to bear witness to the animals, just try to send some love and compassion to those animals. Well, we could, we probably don't have time to talk about the real purpose of vigils, um, but there's a strong purpose and a need for them in the movement, just as there's a need for the kind of outreach that AV does. And other groups like Vegan Outreach. There's a ton of groups that do that. Mm -hmm. DXE, we are focused on change. And we are focused on, in particular, nonviolence. Now, nonviolence requires us to analyze every situation for itself. There is not one size fits all. And what is, we believe in disruption. Now, what is disruptive depends on where and when you are. So if you have a if you live in a major city in the United States and you have, go to a big protest where you're protesting outside of a place, most likely everyone will ignore you because in major cities we are very used to protests. Now if you go to a smaller town somewhere, I, I've seen places where one person standing with a sign was like, whoa, what's going on? People stop. They like, they're gawking from their cars. They do that in Angleton. It's a disruption. <laughs> so one person standing with a sign outside of a store might be disruptive in some small towns. But in a city, in order to be disruptive, we have to go inside. And in soon, that won't be disruptive anymore. Because the problem is, is when it becomes like part of the system, part of society's expectations. It's like getting arrested. You know, getting arrested was hugely powerful in the civil rights movement. Filling up the jails was hugely powerful. But after the 60s and 70s, our systems accounted for it. We no longer are capable of putting the same pressure on these systems because now they all have agreements with other jails. So when we go and do a civil disobedience and we're getting arrested, Um, There can be an impact to that, especially if it helps us get in the news. But in terms of putting pressure on the system, it's just not putting pressure on the system. Mm -hmm. Like, because they'll just send you to another jail. There have even been times where they rent out a warehouse to, to store people in because it's like, oh, you filled out our jails? We'll just rent out a warehouse, you know? And God. 
So we have to constantly evolve and change our tactics. What is we're we are interested in forcing conversations and we are interested in changing the way people look at animals and making concrete changes in institutions. Mm-hmm. And and so we are always evolving. Right. So what are some of the ways that you seek to achieve that now? Since you say that something yeah. like even getting arrested might not be that might not put pressure on the system. So how do you how do you do that? How do you put pressure on the system? Yeah. Um, I think we put pressure on the system in a variety of ways. So, and some of those ways involve getting arrested. So like we recently had an action that um, had a lot of beautiful elements to it uh, where we set up, you know, a hospital tent on um, the property of someone who is raising chickens for slaughter. And we went in and, or, or, or for eggs and... So we went in and got chickens and like started examining them and taking care of them and providing treatment on the spot there. Wow. Like we weren't taking them away. We were just like providing that treatment right there. And the police came and arrested um, everyone who was on the property pretty much. And, and so wow. that was a powerful action. So, and I think we were showing that these animals are sick. These animals are dying in these conditions um, that we really care about these animals. And often, like, just having a strong statement of, like, I care enough that I'm willing to be arrested really helps you to change all of your friends and family. Not all of them, 100%. And everything is, like, you know, statistically, it will happen to a degree, right? So nothing, nothing works 100% of the time. As long as we understand that, right? And if we look at, um, so specific tactics is, um, I I would say the biggest thing is that personal transformation that transforms you into a person that when you have your conversation uh, at work or at your church or your school with your other communities that you're involved in that are not animal rights communities, And when you speak with courage and conviction to them, and when you tell them about powerful things that you have done, they will like take that more seriously. It doesn't matter really so much what I do. What really matters is what you do. So whoever you are as a person, if when you go and talk, and this is a big part of our theory of change, a big part of our theory of change is not that it happens one by one, but it's when we really inspire people. So the Animal Liberation Conference, and you know, if you can come, you should come. Like, it's right. it's an incredible experience, and when you walk away from that experience, you're going to be able to talk to people like you never have before. And it's not because we're going to provide you any special training, although we will provide you special training, but that's not why. The reason why is because you will have had these experiences and you'll be able to go and share those experiences with other people. And so like, so specifically like we're doing larger rescues where we're bringing more people onto these properties to save more animals. Um, We're still doing the nighttime open rescues where we don't release uh, the rescue for a period of time, could be weeks, could be months. And we're still doing various types of protests. We're also doing various types of outreach. We very much support, you know, other groups. You know, we support AV doing cubes. We support SAVE doing vigils. You know, we show up at other people's events. Um, You know, and we look at 
Like, so it's not one tactic. It's, it's shifting tactics. Um, and, you know, also pressing for different kinds of legislation. I feel like we really need to... So Dr. Selesh Rao, Vegan World 2026, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like, you know, with the way the world is right now and with the reports from the UN, I feel like the majority of the movement, including DXE, has their head in the sand. We've got our head in the sand. We're like acting like if we don't look at climate change, then we can just continue with our campaigns. You know, and I think it's really beautiful that we're banning fur. You know, and I think it's wonderful when we challenge animal experimentation. And we need to do those things, and those are good things. But if we don't stop <clears throat> animal agriculture in the next five to ten years, exactly. You know, it doesn't really matter. If we ban fur, if all of the foxes are dead, like if all of the mammals are dead, like that we might get fur from, it just doesn't matter. Well, that's the importance of the rancher advocacy program, because Mm. we really are building a crowdsourced coalition. Uh, And no, you don't have to be a rancher to to be involved. Mm. We have a rancher advisory committee where you do have to have been a rancher uh, or in, you know, your, your family heritage somehow. But in our coalition, you can actually get involved because we believe, too, we have to end animal agriculture. Mm. We have to create new ways of farming for farmers, for ranchers, so that they can still maintain their integrity, their their love for the land, you know, and animals. Because I always tell everyone, you know, ranchers, whether you like it or not, love animals. Mm. They kill them, too. Mm. We used to do it. You know, that's the reason I know is because my husband is so compassionate. He loved these animals and Mm. sent them to the cell barn. Mm. And until we understand that there's something that ranchers, butchers, slaughterhouse workers, there's something that happens inside of a human when they're dealing with animals. They're able to turn on this switch and turn off this switch. When it's time for business, the animals are a commodity to ranchers. It's Yes, they love them, but they're a commodity. They're a way to make a living, to feed the world, and all this. So until that belief system is challenged, we have to have these conversations mm-hmm. so that they are challenged enough to where we will eventually interest them and going deeper than they've ever gone before in exploring that mm. notion of, is this really love? Mm. No, it's mm. really not. We think it is. We call it that. But it's not really love, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, you know, to, to my point about the Rancher Advocacy Program, I would, mm. I would love to hear how, you know, you might want to be involved yourself. Uh, your thoughts on it and you know because we do we have to get change going quickly i think i want to support you doing it because like it's it really epitomizes one aspect of nonviolence, which is crucial for us as a movement you know it with we have to love ourselves you have to love yourself first before you really love other people we have to love each other you know so much we have so much I think we need to criticize each other, but we're not criticizing each other with the intention of like, if I give you a critique so that I, uh, about that rancher advocacy program, it's going to be with love in the hopes that you'll make the program better. 
versus fighting with each other where I'm trying to tear you down. Right. right? So we need that love. And it's like, and we definitely need to act with love for the chickens and cows. And we also need to act with love for our adversaries. And we need to love the people who are currently eating animals, currently raising animals for, for uh, food or, or currently slaughtering them. I would challenge the idea that they're able to turn that switch off. I think they try to. But when we look at slaughterhouse workers, you know, they are a lot of the most injured people. Not, I mean, yes, physically too, mm-hmm. but also just emotionally. Like, uh, they often suffer the same PTSD that our soldiers face in war. And so uh, one of the biggest hopes, and one of the reasons I say we are born with compassion and our nature is compassion, our nature is nonviolence, is because none of us, if, if we are considered relatively healthy and we experience a loving moment, a compassionate moment, that doesn't harm us. But if we experience a lot of violence, even just watching it, that often is traumatic for us. Very much. So even just witnessing violence is traumatic for us. Violence, especially lots of violence, is not in our nature. People say it's our nature to be violent. And I'm like, if it was our nature to be violent, then doing violence would not break us. And doing lots of violence breaks us. Mm -hmm. It breaks us inside. Slaughterhouse workers end up being involved in more um, domestic abuse, more alcoholism, you know, it's really, really harmful to them. Yeah, okay, slaughterhouse workers, okay, so, but for ranchers. Ranchers, so ranchers separate themselves from that slaughter process to a degree. And I've spoken to, I've spoken to people who raise animals uh, locally in Petaluma, and, you know, I felt like, wow, this guy really cares about the pigs that he raises. And I was talking to him about it, but he did kill them himself, but it was not on a massive scale, right? But and what did he have to do to do that? He had to switch. I, I don't know what he had to do, what I know, but I, what I know, what I saw and what I heard in his voice and saw in his eyes was sadness as he talked about it. Yeah. And so... I think that exactly. maybe maybe he felt like he had to, but I don't feel like he wanted to do this. No, my husband never wanted to send our cows to the cell barn. In yeah. fact, he wouldn't even go. He he went sometime, but he always wanted for his um, partner to take mm. them to the cell barn. He didn't want to do it himself, mm. you know. And and when I started challenging, I started actually challenging my husband. With these conversations that he didn't want to have. Exactly yeah. what you're talking about. You know, you were talking about the need to challenge these, con- you know, have these conversations and challenge. I started doing that with my husband. Yeah. I started saying to him, you know, why don't we eat our own cows? Mm. How come we're, we buy our cows from, you know, Whole Foods, oh, our, wow. our meat, and we don't kill our own animals? Mm. And he said stuff to me like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And I'm mm. like, well, we're going to talk about it. Because if I'm going to be a part of, if I'm going to be married to you and a rancher's wife, then I've got to be okay. This is, I didn't know I was transitioning. Hmm. I was transitioning and didn't know it Hmm. because I started forcing these questions. Finally, he answered me and, you know, his answer, right? His answer was, you know, because I know them. Hmm. So he couldn't eat the cows in our pastures because he knew them. There's a movie uh, that makes me think a lot of the Rancher Advocacy Program. It's a documentary called Accidental Courtesy. 
Really? Have you heard of it? No. It's this black man who goes and befriends people in the KKK and, you know, gets them to quit. And it really reminds me of your work um, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's definitely differences. Um, What's the name again? Accidental Courtesy. Um, you know, and nobody's perfect, you know, and, you know, but I think there's a lot to learn from that. And so what I would say, you know, in terms of how do I want to be involved? Like, I don't know if there's specific training I can do. Maybe if there's, if I can uplift your platform on my platform in certain ways, I would love to do that. Um, right now I'm, my work is very focused on how do I, uh, change the movement in two very specific ways. So the first way is have us truly be heart-led and acting with love, like focusing on whenever we interact with anyone that we love that person. So whether that person is our best friend, our parent, you know, our co-organizer, and it's often more difficult to love your co-organizer than your adversary. You know, the person you're working with is like your sibling, yeah. right? You, you, you know, it's often to keep maintain that compassion towards your sibling more than other people. But we need to do that and we need to love our adversaries. So just to have everything really, really be heart-led, focused on love. Like ha- that is the first most fundamental change. The second change is the way we structure ourselves and the way we organize ourselves. Right now, we either look at ourselves as a bunch of individuals or as a large group, and there's no in-between. And we really need to break that down into smaller groups of people who can work together, who can, um, in small teams, create small teams. And I can't go too much more in detail. I've got a lot more, but it would take... You know, it'd probably take a a few days to to really dig into all of that. But keep an eye out. We will be launching something in a few months that I think has the opportunity to really change this movement and to really change other movements, too. Wow. So for people listening um, who might be listening to this and be like, you know what, like, that sounds really cool. Uh, Maybe it's something you never thought about. How do people get involved? How do people get involved either with DXC or direct action? Um, well, you can do a variety of things. Um, let's see. I actually don't know how to answer that right now. Uh, our website is not the best, but it's okay. And I guess we're, we'll make it better, but you can go to dxe.io, uh, that's directactioneverywhere.com. And yeah, that's, that's how you could start getting involved there. If you're interested in supporting my work, uh, just because I started my own. So when you said earlier, one of you said that we're an organization and we're not, we are a network and a platform. So we are not an organization. We are multiple organizations. Mm, I see. I would say every, every region has their own organization. And I started my own because my work is different enough. So what is it? What is my work? Most of my work is training other people and developing new trainings. And so really like, really it's when a chapter has a need for a skill or type of knowledge, it's helping them to get that skill or knowledge. And so if there's a community, whether it's my own or another one that has a need for a skill or knowledge, 
then I do that. And I have a list of trainings that are already like ready to go. And I also develop new ones as needed. So and what kind of training would you say, just uh, just off the top of your head, that the Rancher Advocacy Program needs? Um, well, my favorite one is the nonviolence training. This is a, a two-day nonviolence training. And uh, you should know that I do all of my work on a gift basis. So which that means that if I believe in you and your work, then I'm going to go and offer my services as a gift. Oh, wow. And uh, I offer you the opportunity and everyone the opportunity to contribute so that I can give, continue giving these gifts. So you would um, come like to the sanctuary. We could have, hold a workshop and yeah, you would, I would come out that. and I do would that? love that. Absolutely. Oh, we need to do that. Come on. <laughs> All right. Deal. All right. We'll do that. We'll do that. <laughs> I love so, it because you know when I went to the uh, ALC last year, yeah. I think it was last year, was it your training? I think it was in your... Was it the Kingian training? Yeah, that I was mine. loved yeah. it. Yeah. I had more fun and learned so much mm. in that workshop. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you find my website by going to dxeworkshops.com. It's workshop plural, workshops with an S. Um, and from there, there's a trainings offered section and there's a donation section and there's a bunch of other stuff. dxeworkshops.com. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And another thing that I want to ask you about, because people ask me about this from time to time where they'll message me and they'll be like, how do I get involved with rescuing animals? Mm. And I know that part of the work that you do at DXC is you do open rescues. Yeah. Um, and so I also know that probably a lot of people want to do it because it seems fun and it seems like glamorous and stuff like that. Um, but for people who might be really serious and want to get involved in rescues, mm. how would they go mm. about that? Um, if someone wants to do like rescue, most of the rescue work I have done has been uh, like there's a pond that's drying out and we need to go and get those ducks to another lake or pond, you know, or something like that. So that's most of, so when you want to, if someone wants to rescue animals, if they live in a city, uh, we actually, so we're on my website, there's a little section on, you know, de-stringing pigeons. So you can like, string and I got all of that from the San Francisco uh, Pigeon Save group. Um, and so you can save animals wherever you live in broad daylight, and it's not illegal. You like these animals need to be saved, and while you're saving them, you can document it, and it helps promote a culture of compassion and caring. And you can do it all the time. And there's instructions on how to do it on my website. Um, and if you can, try to find a local mentor. If no one is doing it locally, then learn as best you can and then do it. But if someone is doing it locally, try to learn from them first. So first of all, people want to save animals. Go save animals. You don't have to break the law. You don't have to take huge risks. You just have to have some compassion, a bit of skill. Um, and uh, you know your skill is going to develop as you go. Now, if someone wants to do the more dramatic you know, activism of open rescue, then there's multiple ways to do it. One is to do the daylight open rescue, where we usually have a lot of people mm -hmm. go in. And so, and for that, I would recommend going to someone else's first. Go, come to the Animal Liberation Conference, go to another conference somewhere else where they're, where people are going to do it. Um, you know, I, of course, I'm not certain that we're going to do that. We've done it the last couple of years. So I actually don't know what our action plans are uh, this year. But 
Um, yeah, I would say it's a fair bet that coming is going to get you the kind of experience that you want. So go to someone else's first. But if you're talking about a nighttime rescue, we have um, a guide that will kind of instruct people. And if you, I don't actually know the email. You can email me and I'll forward it to the right people. Um, and What's your email? My email is chris, C-H-R-I-S, at dxe.io. We want people to sign a, a certain agreement that they're not going to disclose this stuff to law enforcement or to uh, the industry. Um, and so a non-disclosure agreement. And if people sign that non-disclosure agreement, then we'll share the information with them. Um, and it's a packet. There also is training at the Animal Liberation Conference. Um, and it's possible in the future that there will be uh, it's probable and likely in the future that there will be training up online for people to view um, and possible trainings in your town. If you're a local chapter of DXE or any animal rights group, if you're doing good activism that's nonviolence, love-based, and consistent with good discipline, you can put out a request and we might be able to come and train you cool. uh, to do it. Wow, that's really cool. Um, and also the, the other thing I want to ask you about that is that I guess that's part of the training and whatever people might receive is part of the packet, but, um, do you think it's important for people if they do want to get involved with that type of rescue that they're very aware of the legal side of how things might go down? Yeah, I think what's, yes, they should be aware of the risks. And one of the things is, and how do you reduce the risks? And one of the things is that. Uh, we wanted to do open rescue. Wayne wanted to do open rescue before we start, before I met him, you know, and, uh, but, um, he was, you know, smart about it. And so what we need to do first is build up a network that can do protests and things. So you need a, you should really have, if you're direct action everywhere, DXE, then you can be a part of our network and we can help protect each other. You know, and if you're not, either whether or not you are, you also should have a local community that will protect you. And so, like, if you have a group of three or four people and you have the skills, you can go and do an open rescue, but it's not that legally safe. So you want to have a larger community that will show up for you if you get arrested. It will go to your court gate, court dates and things like that. And that makes it legally safer. There's other things that make it safer for you and riskier. And I should note, I'm a not, I am not a lawyer. Like, yeah. you know, and so like, and I'm not, I don't like to talk about what is legal and what is not legal. What I'll talk, what I talk about is like what tends to happen. Got it. And there's also needs to be the understanding is that as we put more pressure on industry and on the government, the consequences for these actions will become steeper and steeper. Yeah. So for instance, like people have been arrested Uh, just for asking where Whole Foods got its meat yeah. from, which would have been ridiculous, like never would have happened a couple of years ago, you know, but just for asking, uh, where do you get your meat from? Where do you get, where do you get your eggs from? Like they got arrested just for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, um, that's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, I mean, but it's not within the vacuum. They got arrested for that because we've been protesting there all the time. Because we've gone and, like, Mm -hmm. held vigil inside of there. We've held funerals inside of there. Yeah. You know, we do creative actions. We do songs, you know. Oh, I've seen them. I mean, so so this was a result of... You know, one action after the other, and then you walk in and you ask, where do you get your meat? And they just arrested you before the, anything else got even started. I'm not sure what you just said. Well, so they arrested <laughs> you before you did something. Really. Well, it wasn't me. Whoever it was. Uh, I mean, yeah. whoever it was. They, so, well, What do you mean before anything got started? It you, was the only, it was two people. But no, but, but what I'm saying is mm-hmm. I'm trying to get it in context of what you said before. Yeah. You said the reason why they got arrested was because of the actions taken prior. Yes. Not yes. because of the isolated event of where do you get your meat. Yeah. It was because they already had the experience, the history, and they arrested before anything else could transpire, like another action. They didn't want to there see There was another... not going to be an action that day. But did they know that? I don't know. I'm just wondering. They may have suspected that because there were not a bunch of people there. I'm just wondering, yeah. how in the world could they legitimately arrest anyone just for asking where do you get your meat from how could that be legal um i mean i think we might sue them over it um so i hope so that's just ridiculous Um, i mean that sends a terrible message well it sends the message that they're afraid you know when people are afraid when people are insecure and institutions are afraid and insecure you know they start behaving worse and worse Mm -hmm. you know when people and institutions with power try to maintain that power Mm -hmm. and whole foods is based on this illusion that there is a humane way to kill an animal who does not want to die that there's a humane way to have someone in captivity and there is no good or nice way to have someone in captivity You know, there is no good or nice way to kill someone who wants to live. If someone wants to live, we should help them to live. Yeah. You know, if we want to care about animals, we should care about animals. They used to have wrap animals' bodies in this butcher paper that said, thank you for caring about animals or thank you for your compassion for animals. Like, because they considered buying their murdered bodies from Whole Foods as care, you know, because you were paying more money to have the optics of animals being treated better. And I say the optics of animals being treated better because I personally investigated a lot of facilities, you know, and mostly in this country. And, uh, you know, we're in the United States of America. And we, and... The place that gave me the most nightmares was Distel, which is their like top-rated turkey supplier. They've got like the five-star facility, they've got the three-star facility, and you know the the Global Animal Partnership, which is what Whole Foods uses to rate their things. And yeah, the Distel thing gave me more nightmares than any other place, and that includes when I went to China and like. Uh, you know, investigated the dog meat trade and rescued some dogs. And so, like, I, I just found, you know, part a big part of why we went to China was to show how what we do here reinforces what happens over there. And, you know, we, this country invented, you know, the factory farming, right? This country, like, took exploitation 
to the next level. So we, we have this huge propensity of racism and like we, you know, talk about how horrible it is to do these things to dogs or cats or other animals and how horrible these other countries are. When what we are doing from my personal experience is so much worse. What we do, you know, to pigs, to chickens, to turkeys, to cows, I feel like is as bad or worse than what any other country does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I also just want to say, because, you know, Whole Foods is always welcome to come on the Two Rowdy Vegans. Mm. If you would like to come on our show and be interviewed by me and Ryuji, we welcome you. Just so you know, right? I mean, I just want to say that. That's absolutely the best attitude to have. We always, you know, the reason why we protest them so much is because we want to talk to them. Yes. They don't want to talk to us. Um, And, you know, same thing. We've had campaigns against our main campaigns have been Chipotle and Whole Foods. And neither of them have wanted to talk. Um, And we've targeted a number of other places. And we've actually had conversations with, uh, you know, Smithfield and other places. Um, Norbest. Definitely have had conversations with Norbest. I mean, they released 100 um, turkeys to us. Last year. Yeah, last year. And so, yeah, we want that conversation. We want it. All of you are welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, bring it on. You know, we need to be having these conversations. We need to lift the awareness of, you know, the choices that we have. uh, Instead of keeping things submerged in darkness and, you know, where we just don't talk about it. And, you know, that's... Where so much of the violence is really uh, bred is in the darkness. It's in that place of, you know, we just won't look there. You know, it's uh, we know what's going on, but we won't look, we won't talk. And the violence continues to fester. It continues to uh, infiltrate our communities, our our families, you know, our world. Mm. You know, when we bring it to the surface, we can, we can incite change. Mm. Great. So uh, that's kind of all I wanted to ask you, at least for this particular conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask or that you wanted to add? The only thing that just keeps kind of pressing on me is, you know, the urgency mm. of our work. Um, you know, we've talked about Dr. Salesh Rao and the Vegan World 2026 movement, which is, to me, you know, what it's, ni- it's 2019. Uh, we The clock is ticking. And if if that is true... And we will have no more wild animal vertebrates uh, by 2026 if we keep going along the trajectory that we're now on. Uh, we're in a sad, sad place. And if we do not get our head out of Uranus, wherever it is, <laughs> if we out don't get sand. our huh, out you know? of the sand, yeah, if we don't get our head out of the sand, what are we going to do, guys? I mean, we have to start really looking at the problem uh, is that we are headed over a cliff. And so we, I, I really do believe we must collectively unify your work, uh, you know, uh, with uh, the, the Kingian, uh, Kingian, right? Yeah, Kingian nonviolence. Kingian nonviolence. I think that's so essential. Uh, it, needs to, it needs to go everywhere because that is what's going to help all of us as activists work together, you know, so that we can get to what we need to do to turn this. T- I mean, we're a global Titanic. Yeah. So I guess what I would say is pretty much every, every animal rights group and every social justice group 
um, almost every one of them, all the ones that I'm aware of, with the exception of Extinction Rebellion, um, is their their position is they're working on some specific concrete change, which will hurt help specific animals in for a period of time. And if we go along this trajectory, then those animals who would have been helped simply won't exist. In a couple of hundred years, in a few hundred years, um, it, like I said, it won't. it's great that we're banning fur and we need to. And if we don't end animal agriculture in a couple hundred years, it's not going to matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what the problem is that we are asking the wrong questions. We are. So I'm going to something I told you all earlier is different ways of thinking about goals. One way to think about a goal is to say, what is an easy goal that we can really blow past and feel really good about? Another way to think about a goal is what is a difficult goal? What is like the most difficult goal we can think of that we might be able to achieve? Let's try to do that. And even if we don't make it, we'll have done more than we otherwise would have. And then there's a third way to think about it, which is you don't think at all about what's possible. You think about what needs to happen. And if we just think about like putting a man on the moon, if we think about like having a submarine, if we think about, you know, just flight, if we think about um, like the tremendous things that we've been able to do on a really large scale and then on an incredibly small scale, like investigating the atom, investigating even smaller particles, like we are capable of solving incredibly complex and difficult mm-hmm. problems, but only when we really try to. And right now, the animal rights movement is asking the wrong questions. We are asking, some of us are asking, how do I make one more person vegan? Some of us are asking, how do we get more people to eat less meat? Some of us are asking, how do we give animals bigger cages? In DXC, we're asking, how do we get animal personhood in 40 years? And even that is far short of what we need. What we need, you know, according to the environmental scientists, is to end animal agriculture. Yes. And, And we need to do it. I mean, the truth of the matter is we needed to do this four decades ago. It's not 40 years from now. It's 40 years ago. So we need to end animal agriculture. Now. Now. We need to end fossil fuels. And we need to do a lot of other creative things that we don't yet have the solution to. And all of this is just for survival. And so what I would say in terms of urgency is to all the animal rights groups is to consider the question how do we prevent mass extinction? Like if our constituents is the animals, then how do we make the world into a world where they can survive? We got to give the land back to the animals. We, we just have to do that. We have to figure out a way to give the land back to the animals. And in my mind, I see this planet, this earth, it's being used for the wrong reasons. It's being used to confine, mutilate, torture you know, uh, animals, it's, it's being used for that. And we are smart enough to figure out how to use this land so that we can give the animals back their home, you know, instead of confining them like we have. Well, as opposed to 
the language of using this land, working with this land. Yeah. And I think that, you know, giving the land back to, you know, other animals and to indigenous folks whose land this should be, um, will make, will take us closer. You know, I don't have all of the answers. I'm very far from having all of the answers. I think I have some of the right questions. And I think the biggest problem with the animal rights movement and with other movements is that we're asking the wrong question. We're asking for too little. And, you know, that's just going to lead us to mass extinction. We are on the path to mass extinction. And it's going to take an incredible amount of work for us to turn around. And so I don't want to hear about what's possible. What I want to hear about is like, what's magical? You know, like, what are the magical things that we've done before? I think landing a person on the moon in 10 years, uh, like, you know, maybe 11 years is like, that's pretty magical. When we went from like, not even like having anyone in space, not even being able to send anything up into space. You know, we go from that, uh, you know, to, to that, um, creating a new sanctuary. I called you when I first talked to you, you know, to me, it would be really magical if we could create a different type of sanctuary for animals that are rescued from cell barns, that are rescued from ranches, you know, like we have 220 cows right now. If we had a place, you know, where we could put them, we're talking about, you know, getting creative around land trust. A carbon negative sanctuary. We could have a carbon negative sanctuary. Problem. I I love that idea and we absolutely should do it. Um, We can't put all of the animals in carbon negative sanctuaries because there's not enough land for it. Um, But yeah, it makes me sad. I am am terrified every day. Every day I think about the state of the world and I am terrified. And I also every day think of the enormity of the problem and I'm excited. I am excited because... I think that we will solve this problem and that humans will survive. And I think we have the opportunity to address the main cause of these problems. The main cause of these problems is the idea that one group is superior to another group. You know, whether it's white supremacy, male supremacy, or human supremacy, these things have, like, we've documented how male supremacy, patriarchy is harmful to males as well as females. We've documented how like white supremacy is like destroys the the emotional well-being of the white person as well as the emotional and physical well-being of people of color. And it also keeps white poor white people down too. So we've documented those things. And we see how human supremacy is leading to human demise. Not just through our immediate health concerns from high blood pressure and things like that, although that can, our personal nutrition can be a factor, but really we see it in through like, we just act and take as much as we want from whoever we want without any concern as, because we think we're better than them. And because it tastes good. That's the worst. Well, it's this supremacy idea that leads us to think it's okay to take from someone else. And so I'm excited at the opportunity. The enormity of this problem gives us the enormity of a possibility of a world that's really based on compassion and love, where we 
really address supremacy. We don't just technologically figure out a way to pull carbon out of the air. That's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that we figure out a way to just pull the carbon out of the air and we don't solve any of these root issues. <laughs> you know, we have the opportunity now to to create a world where everyone is compassionate towards everyone else. We have the opportunity to remove these ideas of supremacy, to remove these ideas that we are different in any fundamental way. Like, and so I think that we can build a movement that is based on equality and equity. So moral equality and physical equity. So morally, we're all the same. We're all equal. And physically, we all have different needs. So we give to each other based on what our needs are, not not everyone gets the same. Mm. And so this, I am every single day I'm terrified and every single day I am excited. And so like, and I go back and forth between these three and I cry every day over these issues. And so, and I feel tremendous pressure. I feel tremendous pressure because most people are not even thinking about the, not just most people, most people in the movement (coughs) are not thinking about what is this problem? How can we actually solve this problem? Most people in the movement are solving problems that quite frankly lead us to mass extinction that do not take us in the right direction at all. Ah, And so help help relieve me with some of this pressure and start asking, how do we stop mass extinction? (coughs) Take, take a look at extinction rebellion. Take a look at, um, Something that we will hopefully launch in a few months. We're not ready yet. Got it. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm definitely going to listen back to this and take some notes. I know. It was and, very, very uh, enlightening. Ask, ask myself that question, actually, because I realized I'm like, yeah, I, I do that too. So um, thank you so much for stopping by for this episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening mm-hmm. on the other end of the podcast. We appreciate your listenership, as always. And so uh, who, 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 who are we? Who we are the two rowdy rowdiest vegans. Two, two, two rowdy 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 vegans. Two, two rowdy vegans. One plus one equals two rowdy vegans. <laughs> <laughs>